If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. If this is your first time tuning into the show, welcome to another episode of And Security for All. I hope everyone's ready for this cold weekend here in the Midwest. Hopefully, we're going to see some sun and we're going to see some spring flowers. It's May 1st and we're still wearing our coats here. So, hopefully, we're not going to plunge straight into summer. But anyway, um, for those of you that don't know, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We host cybersecurity events all over North America. We actually just wrapped up our event this week. We were in New Jersey on this past Wednesday, and we had a great event. Our keynote speaker was um, the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer um, for the state of New Jersey. He had a packed house, and we were super excited to have him um, spend the afternoon with us. We are traveling full-fledged all around North America, so check us out at futureconevents.com. And if we happen to be in your area, we would love to uh, extend you all a free pass and come uh, see us at one of our events. We are doing all of our events in a hybrid mode, so we would love to have you even join us virtually. Um, If you are new into the cybersecurity industry, you definitely are at the right place. Today we have a great show. We have um, we were out in Omaha on April 20th and we had a really, really packed house and our keynote speaker was uh, Robert LaMagna Ryder and he um, spoke on groundhogs and rainbows. He's the VP and Chief Information Security Officer of Huddle. Um, he is He is a great leader in the uh, Omaha area. He leads information security strategies and roadmaps. He oversees risk management strategy, architecture. He heads up the regulatory compliance and IT governance. Um, He was a great keynote speaker. And then following that, we had a great uh, panel discussion with um, many of the leading CISOs in Omaha. We had um, Sarah Flores. She was the deputy CISO for the First National Bank of Omaha. We had Melissa Moreno. She was the chief information officer from Lindsay Corporation. We had Chad Lynch, who was the CIO slash CISO for the Metropolitan Community College. And then we also had Robert LaMagna Ryder. Again, he is the VP and Chief Information Security Officer of Huddle. And Norm Kronberg was um, moderating that panel. And you all can go to the FutureCon, um, our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that. If you go to our website, you'll see the link to um, follow us on YouTube. And you can catch all of our panels, everything we're doing around the country, exciting stuff. Um, I definitely encourage you all to um, check that out. So today we are going to um, play the recording of... uh, Robert's keynote session that he did, as I said, two weeks ago, and there'll be some Q&A at the end. So again, um, check him out on LinkedIn. If you have any questions for him, you can certainly message me and I can put you in touch with him. But um, we have a fascinating about 47 minutes of uh, his talk and discussion from two weeks ago. So um, enjoy the talk and I will check back in with everyone at the end of the show. And thank Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and um, enjoy Robert. With that being said, Robert, it's all yours. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to see everybody. Wow. Uh, Hundreds of people online and in person. Doesn't this feel great after a couple of years? I mean, uh, several of us have been waiting to get back in person for a lot of these events. It's great to now see people face to face, uh, you know, have in-depth conversations, not worry about whether the dog's barking, the vacuum's running, a kid running up into you, right, running. We've all enjoyed those experiences, but wow, it's great to be back in person, and it's a pleasure to see everybody. Thanks for sticking around uh, for, for my session over lunch. 
our agenda today. Uh, I won't spend too much time on an intro, Kim. Thank you for the wonderful intro. We'll dive into uh, you know our current situation that's going to set the stage for uh, our, our wonderful journey over rainbows, groundhogs. Uh, how do you jump over that rainbow to, to a better world and information security? Some closing thoughts. I will do my best to you know have some time set aside for some Q&A at the end. If for some reason we're not able to cover all the questions, I'll be sticking around for the remainder of the day. Uh, so as Kim mentioned, I've, I've been doing this security thing 16, 17 years, and in the last few years, my, my calling has really been to help lead, coach, mentor, advise uh, teams, organizations, both uh, you know formally and then consulting on the side and trying to mentor, grow, and give back to the community, which brings me here today. So I'm excited that uh, I can share some of my thoughts and uh, experiences with you on how I've tried to transform and implement solid risk management frameworks in security teams and programs across different verticals. So our current situation, we've had a lot of fascinating technology discussions today, right? We have a lot of very capable, very smart people in the room today, a lot of uh, fantastic vendors that have solutions, but I describe our current situation as this, right? We've been trying to move our cart forward. Uh, we've been pressing forward all, you know, very hard, very intently, trying to secure our, our entire attack surface. Uh, anytime a new suggestion or idea comes up, sometimes we are too head down, we know what we're doing, we, we can't be uh, stopped to reevaluate, come up for air, we're gonna press forward, and sometimes that induces sanity, insanity. Primarily because information security is fundamentally hard, right? I don't think anybody in here would disagree. And the reason is we're trying to battle a threat that is unconstrained. What does that mean, right? The threat can't generally be quantified to an exact degree. So no system can really be threat-proof, right? And so we've gotten to this cycle of trying to secure the entire thing. Uh, very, very similar to putting a fence around a property. You can't secure a property by putting a fence around three sides, but generally you can't see the entire property, right? That's very similar to what we're trying to do in information security. So we found ourselves in this world, uh, this weird insanity conundrum, uh, trying to do the same thing over and over and expecting different outcomes. Anyway, we, we layer and layer and layer. We layer new solutions. We think a new technology is gonna solve our problem. Instead of focusing on the underlying business processes and fixing those underlying issues and having very difficult and hard discussions, uh, some of these that we'll talk about later on are like defining and uh, developing and protecting what we call a protect surface, not an attack surface. And we'll get to that here in a little bit later. You know, privacy has also made this challenge worse, right, globally. Uh, you couple this with the unique challenge and stressors that we're all facing right now, the, the great resignation is so it's been called. So we're battling resources, both people, process technology and organizations. Not enough uh, individuals working in what we call CompreSec roles or this combination of compliance, privacy, privacy and security. I think most of us in this room at some point or another have operated in a CompreSec role where you're trying to fill multiple hats at once and you have to go 10 miles wide, 10 miles deep. But it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, to claw our way out of it, we're going to dive into a history lesson where some things might have went wrong. Uh, we actually knew the answer to this 50 years ago or more. Uh, we're going to recap how we can solve this problem. And we're going to start by going on a journey looking for trust. Where art thou trust? And it all starts uh, by looking back at rainbows, right? Uh, maybe not this rainbow, so we're going to hop into our trusty time machine and we're going to wind up with these rainbows. Does this look familiar to anybody? Bring up some PTSD maybe? <laughs> so I refer to these as the OG, right? It's the rainbow series, uh, uh, sometimes known as the rainbow books. All it is was a series of computer security standards and guidelines that the US government published in the 80s and 90s. Uh, originally within the Department of Defense, uh, computer Security Center, and then by the National uh, Computer Security Center. These standards described a process of evaluation for trusted systems. In some cases, government entities and private firms would require formal validation, formal validation of their technology using this process as part of their procurement criteria. You know, many of these standards have influenced and then been superseded by things such as the common criteria, 
Um, but they were called the Rainbow Series because they each had nicknames based on the color of their cover, right? So for example, one of the ones that we'll dive into some examples of, of how we can draw on the past to solve the challenges of the future is the Orange Book, which uh, dived into uh, discussions for the trusted computer system evaluation criteria. Again, you're gonna hear the word trust a lot in this conversation because that's fundamentally my hypothesis of where things have went wrong. Uh, over the course of time, we focused on security when we should be focusing on trust. So there's a lot of information up here, but we're gonna hone in on a couple of specific uh, areas, right? The Orange Book had six fundamental areas, right? Your, your security policy, marking, identification, accountability assurance, and continuous protection. So what does that mean, right? It, it means that our policies have to be well-defined and that we determine whether a subject matter can be permitted to gain access to a specific object. It sounds incredibly simple, right? Then you have your labels, your tagging tied to the sensitivity of a document uh, in which access to the information is mediated based on the identity and what information they deal with. And then we hold folks accountable by you know, auditing uh, and keeping logs so that we can trace back and ensure that um, actions uh, have uh, integrity. We follow this up by requirements for secure processing. The Orange Book had specific security feature and assurance requirements. So we knew all this, we defined all this. And then you dive into concepts such as that reference monitor and that trusted computing base. Uh, it's not incredibly difficult, right? You, you know, you can take, talk that concept through the creation of an operating system or a security vendor product or even the security program development. All we're talking about is authorizing access, uh, authorized access relationships between subjects and objects of the system, right? It sounds a lot like somebody would simplify it as an access list. Somebody would simplify it as the end-to-end -end spectrum of making sure that what's going on in a network environment is supposed to be going on in a network environment, right? We've heard a lot of talks today about the threats and how we need AI, machine learning, and how we need a whole host of capabilities to solve uh, the, the uh, unquantifiable threats that we're all facing, when in fact, the threat model can be broken down to three, three areas, right? Penetration, malicious software, and subversion. Those criteria and the structure added uh, those threats and provided uh, actions and guidance on how to deter them from a system. Now, that's not saying that the threats haven't become more sophisticated, but in a way is we've overcomplicated the solution, have overcomplicated the problems which have turned into a flywheel that have overcomplicated what we're trying to solve on a day in and day out basis. Why do all of those matter? Again, they focus on trust and persistent access, behavior and intentionality versus capabilities. So we all knew what to focus on. We were taught either through college, through reference uh, manuals as we were learning uh, our ways throughout information security, information assurance, audit, we knew what to focus on decades ago. And so we're gonna take some of the concepts identified in that rainbow series, which we could probably spend the entire presentation on. Uh, and we're gonna take a look at some of the security models that tried to build and impart to individuals how to take the concepts in those extremely long white papers, which by the way, they're a little harsher to read than some of the NIST documentation. So, uh, so let's take a look, right? Uh, I think a lot of us recognize Bella Padula, Biba, and some of the other security modules. Uh, we think back to the summer, I think it was in 1972, uh, the MITRE Corporation, which that sounds familiar, right? We're all familiar with the MITRE attack and defend frameworks. They actually initiated a task to produce a report entitled Secure Compute Systems. That modeling task fell to uh, LaPagel and David Bell, uh, and the goal was to stay agnostic, right? So free of system-specific details, identifying and investigating just general principles and addressing specific access solutions that could be incorporated into security programs, both from technology all the way through uh, individual uh, organizations. It's an access control model, right? No read up, no write down, pretty simple. You counter that uh, with uh, focusing on uh, confidentiality and integrity or at odds with each other, right? So that's where BIBA comes into play. Think of uh, the BIBA security model uh, addressing integrity is characterized as no read down, no write up, right? The summary of that is that Biba takes Bella Padula's rules and reverses them, showing how we all know confidentiality and integrity can sometimes be at odds with one another. 
but they don't always have to be, which is what led to the development of other advanced models like the Clark Wilson, Chinese Wall or Nash model, Graham Denning, and so forth. Now, unfortunately, in our day-to-days, a lot of uh, our real-world modeling and implementations have been trumped by that grand A in the CIA triangle, right? The availability, the businesses need availability 100%. But by drawing on where these models drew their, um, their sources from, Clark Wilson, Chinese Wall, Grand Minute, these were all real-world models that helped protect integrity by layering in subjects requiring ac access to objects via programs and so forth. Um, it became more complicated when you had things like a multi-level security system, which we'll talk about here in a second. But all of these models, plus the guidelines from the Rainbow series, they were all designed to protect against persistent, misaligned access to trusted computing resources, applications, and data. So think about that for a second. Everything we've been talking about today, uh, the last few years, months, we knew how to solve this 50 years ago. We're just solving the same problem over and over again with shiny lights, bells, and whistles without focusing on the fundamental issues. So where the heck did things go wrong, right? If we knew the answer, why do we keep making the same mistake over and over again? So multi-level security is the application of a computer system to process information within different sensitivities. Like, so for example, you're storing top secret, secret, and unclassified information on the same system, for example, right? And we want to permit um, access to all of those at the same time by different users with different security clearances. That's possible, but the challenge being it can be time conducive or uh, time conducive and expensive. So systems that implement that multi-level security restrictions sometimes only allow sharing where it doesn't violate those restrictions. Users with lower clearances should be able to access their work um, with the right permissions. But here's the challenge. Most commercially available software don't attempt to close all these covert channels, which is why we find ourselves in a lot of the patch and pray issues no matter if we're buying the latest and greatest off-the-shelf software or vendor system that promises to protect against zero or end days, it's impossible to close all those convert channels. You have to secure the whole system, which businesses and vendors alike do not invest the appropriate resources in doing so because it's impossible to create a 100% secure system. Unfortunately, we've started with this shaky foundation, right? And it takes an enormous amount of effort to resolve some of these issues if we continue doing the same thing over and over. Semi-modern uh, semi operating systems did a horrible job at this as well, which have also created to the problem, right? Those with the little windows in, in the name, right, didn't make our lives any easier because they did no, uh, no effort in large part to close a lot of those covert channels. You then dive into the problem where you have these quantification and qualification challenges. If we're faced with a threat that cannot be fully quantified or qualified, even using our best efforts like the FAIR model, which for those of you that have dived into the factor analysis of information risk models, it was a great first attempt at trying to quantify and qualify some of the information risk, but it's very cumbersome and it can be very challenging for organizations that are not at certain maturity levels to take advantage of that to communicate to the boards. The problem is we've been focusing on security instead of trust. And that has led to a, hot, a hard work hot potato where we're not avoiding the work that's hard, but we're avoiding all of the work that truly pays dividends in the future. So I'd summarize it as the, the topics up here are, are probably uh, the biggest culprits to this, right? Security professionals, all of us in here, we haven't demanded anything better. So we've, we now have this robust, confusing, large, and always changing uh, security vendor space that are trying to plug the gaps. We ask for solutions, they provide them, right? But we're, not, we're asking for the wrong solutions. But instead of a world where we manage risk in a simple manner, we added so much complexity to our processes where we make things worse than they actually need to be. Uh, I'm sure all of us have experienced the time where we feel like we can never get ahead, even with the most robust and well-funded security teams and programs, or even the regulations from uh, you know, governments or, or customers alike, that are forcing us to try to get better at this. So now we have an inefficient use of people, process, and technology. The benefit for information security, let alone compliance and privacy, uh, before those were formal disciplines, has been shaky at best. So again, we've, we've stopped doubling down on figuring out how to implement business-aligned security risk management solutions, which all they do is derive from the works we discussed and would have been a lot of hard work, right? 90% process-oriented but it's much easier for us to focus on technology to go solve simple problems. 
Um, we tried to change human behavior through security awareness, and we've seen how effective that's been. Uh, again, this is not an exhaustive list of why we find ourselves in the solution or the, the scenario today, but it has led to Groundhog Day, right? Not just, not just one Groundhog Day limited to reliving February 2nd, but we find ourselves in this day, day after day, year after year. Uh, despite the advancements we've made in our ability to prevent, detect, and respond to incidents, it hasn't gotten any better despite the uh, uh, despite the promises made to us by a lot of those out in the solution space. I'm gonna throw you your obligatory incident sampling, right? We can point to this all day long and just replace the names, but you see a lot of the commonalities out here. Uh, supply chain, ransomware, ransomware, no MFA, all these can be tied back to trust and permissions and patching, right? But this doesn't mean the pendulum has to swing in the opposite direction, right? Because we can't eliminate all risk. Right? I'm not up here advocating that that's our, our task. Our job is to manage it to an acceptable level. The only way to eliminate all risk is by shutting the business down, which you know, goes against why we're here in the first place, right? Uh, but we shouldn't be stubbing our toes in the very easy, uh, low-hanging fruits. Think about this. We, we knew this. We, we know this. We advocate. We preach this. This is how we judge the success and efficacy of our program is by managing risk to acceptable levels. But we're not communicating it or obtaining the buy-in to strategy in the correct ways. That lack of business translation and agreement from all parties, the transparency and the adequate understanding across the business, that's what keeps us, struck in, uh, keeps us stuck in Groundhog Day. A lot comes back to what we've been chartered to do, what we expect of ourselves, and again, how we define trusted systems, not secured systems. So thinking back to the Rainbow Series and the security models, Let's focus on why we continue to struggle. The, do we all know the difference between trusted and secure? Trusted, at its very basic sense, is sufficient assurance that a product meets design specifications. A trusted system in itself, when you dive in, is one that you have a high degree of assurance in. Okay? That's, that's something tangible. We can get around that. Secure means it cannot be compromised, that it has no vulnerability. Well, how many systems do you know meet that definition? Right? Secure systems means not only does it have no vulnerability, but it's a complete system end-to-end -end that is free from vulnerability. So I challenge that secure systems largely do not exist. They do exist in some highly sensitive um, areas, right? The US government does a good job of being able to secure certain systems because they're eliminating the access and the ability to manip manipulate those systems so that you cannot exploit said vulnerabilities. But most systems we assume are secure are actually designated as highly trusted or trusted to a large degree. We message and aim for perfection, we strive for metrics in an ambiguous environment, and that leaves us struggling if we don't have adequate risk management, risk tolerance, and risk acceptance defined within a business to help guide us. And so we default to what we do, right? We're information security professionals, we're gonna go secure our systems, and then when the business has a security incident or breach, leadership is asking, well, how the heck did that happen? If you're information security professionals and you're securing our systems, you know, where's the delta? Nothing is secure uh, except devices, again, that we talked about that are correctly secured from inception, but we should be focusing on trust. Trust to data, trust to applications, trust to assets, trust to services, and trust among all identities. That is how we escape Groundhog Day. But before we do that, as I'm up here advocating for trust instead of security, our industry continues to move further down the Groundhog Day pattern by trying to advocate for something called a cybersecurity mesh architecture. Some have tried to solve that problem by adding more complexity than required or desired. I mean, look at that. I mean, who wants to sign up to work in an environment that you have to maintain and configure all of those solutions? It looks really cool, right? The, the technical individual inside me wants to get hands-on and, and, and manipulate the outputs that are coming from the whole host of products and making this phenomenal homogenous system that is gonna solve all of our problems, but that doesn't exist, right? We're signing up for a lot of overhead. We're overcomplicating this solution where it hinders us to do more good than bad. Oh, and you see SIM that's stuck up there, right? Remember, gosh, was it 20, 30 years ago? SIM was supposed to be that centralized solution point to all of our problems, right? And so we get into this repetitive cycle of just one more product, one more capability is going to align and automate and solve all of our problems. When at the end of the day, really, 90% of what you need are solid processes, risk management, agreement, visibility, 
And that's going to tell you what, if any, of these enforcement capabilities you need. I get your mileage will vary depending on what industry you're in, right? Some of us have regulations that require things to be done in a certain way, but that does not eliminate the need of processes, risk management, visibility that lead up to these requirements and technology. Uh, I can't restate Bruce Schneier any better than this, right? But technology does not solve your security problems. If you think it does, you don't truly understand the problems and you, you really don't understand the technology, right? That has held true since uh, you know Bruce engaged on his, his mission to help better uh, the information security risk management community and holds true today. So let's recap. We've been trying to mitigate the threats, the threats themselves, and the attack surface that we can't define and protect versus actually protecting the data itself. The data is the one thing that we know and have the ability to go forth and protect. So if the threats are unconstrained, that is, it can't be truly quantified in a way that it's accurate more than the moment you do that initial uh, quantification, a system cannot be threat-proof. Uh, call back to some of our security models. There was this thing called the global property, which I alluded to, right? You have to secure the whole thing. The entire system must be secure for us to say it's secure. Again, a fence is only useful. It goes around the entire side of a property you're trying to protect. Uh, that's very similar to us trying to define an attack service. Uh, think about the solutions that have cropped up over the last few years. We can't define our attack surface, so we're going to go pay somebody else to help go out there and scan, define our attack surface for us, at which point we don't know how valuable that telemetry information is and how to quantify it and make decisions based on it. Uh, that's why it is so difficult for information security sometimes to keep pace with the business and vice versa. Uh, we've been fo focusing on the threats and elusive security versus data and trust. So if trust is the root of all of our problems, that means trust itself is the vulnerability that is actually exploited by malicious actors. Uh, we use this a lot at, at Huddle, and I think it's appropriate here as well that recognizing what got us here will not get us to the next stage in the evolution of our, our programs. We can end Groundhog's Day, uh, just like Phil Connors, right, in the movie. You know, he escaped when he realized his, his, his escape was triggered by a transformation, a core transformation to a different and better person. That's the only time he was able to escape, right? So my challenge to us in this group and what we're going to dive into is that we're no different. We have the strategy, we have the processes, we have the knowledge, but we have to rethink how we're capable of enforcing our strategy. We have to rethink how we're maintaining our security programs and evolve how we engage the business, maintain and improve our programs, and revive our strategies, challenge what we have learned. That way we can get over the rainbow, right? So these two can coexist. They don't have to be stuck in Groundhog's Day. So how do we, how do, we do this? A complex system is easy to compromise. We talk about today, you've heard a lot of pitches from folks Advanced persistent threats, ransomware, all of artificial intelligence. Gosh, those are overly complicated problems to a very simple, or overcomplicated solutions are a very simple problem. Users, as we all know, will tend to circumvent or bypass complex or time-consuming security controls in the name of efficiency or time savings. They'll push back. They'll kick their feet. They'll get around us one way or another, right? This, in turn, makes our controls ineffective, and we're always playing catch-up. The KISS principle underlies many important tools and practices in information security, right? So a couple of restatements that I'll, I'll make for this group before we get to the next slide is that least privilege can be thought of a restatement of the KISS principle as it pertains to assigning rights to users, right? We use least privilege all the time. Least functionality could be a restatement of uh, the KISS principle as it applies to maybe like a server and service provisioning. All about reducing the complexity. Which brings us to zero trust. I will challenge you that zero trust, in a lot of ways, is just a very simple, KISS-inspired representation restatement of the ideas advocated in the Rainbow Series in real-world validated security models. And why is that? It's because it's a cybersecurity strategy. That's all it is. Um, it addresses the shortcomings of all the failed approaches that we struggle time and time again by removing the assumption of trust altogether, okay? You think about that, it's, it's, eliminate, it's to eliminate the concept of trust from our digital ecosystems. It's really not a best practice that we should be following, it's a strategy that should guide how we mold controls, how we value and secure data. And 
you know, we know breaches themselves are tied to internal causes, either malicious or accidental, right? So again, that's access to sensitive business and customer data has to be protected by giving us the least amount of access and trust needed to do our jobs. That's not saying we should stop the business, but it's saying we have to rethink how we're trusting systems, not securing systems. We'll get into here a little bit too, how that with a comprehensive approach, it can become a business enabler. Any kind of zero trust strategy that supports you know, architecture, controls, processes, and risk management, it actually simplifies the protection of our data, makes our teams more effective, and helps us better protect our critical assets. It helps us seamlessly and securely deliver business transformation, enables us to support our business's competitive advantage, and makes us a differentiator. Uh, it's also designed to be strategically resonant at the highest levels of organization, also supporting finance, right? Taking advantage of things that have the most, uh, I'm gonna throw out the term ROI, right, or the return on the investment with a security program and how you're allocating your cycles versus your risk management program. So zero trust in itself is actually upholding the, the keep it simple principle to the fullest degree. It helps us unite technology and business stakeholders because the last thing a business stakeholder wants is for information security to say, that's great, submit your request to our portal, take a line, get, get in our queue, we'll do a review of your design concepts, and then kind of sort of put an SLA on it when we're gonna get back to you, right? It's very difficult to gauge the severity of depth and breadth of which security teams will need to review uh, you know, new architectures, when if you boil it down to what we'll talk about here in a little bit, this thing called a protect surface, you can define and put uh, uh, action behind things such as data, things such as assets, things such as applications and services and identities, and help enable the business to almost do a uh, microservice-like architecture when they're developing business processes by dragging and dropping and helping work with security to define what those roles look like. You know, as I, as I stand up here and talk about zero trust, it, it's also, uh, we all know that there's a lot of misconceptions that are out there about zero trust too, right? It, there's a lot of misnomers about the word. It's been around, it's been highly uh, uh, emotionally charged. It's on a lot of our bingo cards actually. I bet if you go to some of the conferences around the country too, right? It's been hammered and beaten to death. Zero trust is not about making a system trusted. We've already covered that. It, it's about to eliminate that concept of trust. Uh, one of the ones that I hear time and time again is that zero trust is about identity. Uh, identity is part of zero trust. Uh, we all recognize that identity can help enable a uh, borderless work environment, right? Identity is one of those key concepts, but think about that traffic that's being generated by an identity. All of it has to be inspected for malicious content, unauthorized activity, logged and acted upon. So as we get into protect surface and define that later on, you need to extend that across the entire end-to-end -end transmission stream. And identity is a key component of that, but identity is not the uh, silver bullet to zero trust. Uh, this one, uh, we hear over and over again. I hear from a lot of vendors that our tools will provide security leaders and practitioners with the visibility so that you can dot, dot, dot. The challenge being most times that visibility is not actionable. Uh, so I do need my trusted partners and vendors to give me visibility uh, that if I don't have it through an efficient process internally, but don't give me something that I can just dump myself and rework myself. That's not worth the relationship. That has zero value to me, right? That should have zero value to all of us in this room. What does have value is a solution that supports my strategy and journey that gives me actionable outputs that makes my life better, that truly understands my business. Uh, zero trust is really not complicated. We're gonna start by focusing on the most critical applications and assets. We're gonna build a strategy around the four design concepts of zero trust. And we're going to dive in that it's not complicated, but it sounds complicated because it forces us to focus on the work that we've put off for so long, right? It, focus, it, it requires us to focus our time and attention on the data itself, the classification, tagging, governance of said data, the roles and access rights, those are the foundational elements that we'll talk about that, that support a zero trust strategy. And oh, guess what? Those are the things that we should be uh, focusing on now as well. But since we haven't, it's uh, our problems are more compounded. We also need to call this out. Uh, 
I don't, I don't think many of us are making this mistake, but I have come across several organizations that I've consulted for that, you know, they'll pick a, a framework off of this, this list here and say, well, that is my strategy. I'm going to go forth and I'm going to go implement uh, NIST CSF, and that's my cybersecurity strategy. Well, that's not a strategy. A framework is not a strategy. Uh, when we talk about having a strategy, uh, for an effective practice, a framework is great, but it's an interpretation of your cybersecurity strategy. Uh, a framework can be implemented through your controls that are designed through a zero-trust strategy and applied throughout the organization. So my call to action for this group is in order to get started on the road to zero trust, we need to level ourselves up one more to adjust our strategy. If you don't already have something called a grand strategy within your cybersecurity program that aligns to your business initiatives, that is where we, start, we need to start focusing ourselves. Uh, a couple of samples up here might be prevent data misuse, prevent security breaches, right? These are meant to be bold, right? We're never gonna prevent all security breaches, but we need to have a grand strategy that we're pivoting our North Star around. Uh, we have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired, and so it's gonna for force us to reevaluate what a true business-aligned security program looks like. So once you've identified what your grand strategy looks like, you're going to support that grand strategy through a zero trust strategy. You're gonna, we're gonna follow the zero trust design concepts we'll outline. You will incorporate your risk management program which has things such as appetite and tolerance which give us the metrics for, for gauging success. Uh, then we are going to focus on our smallest protect service as possible and expand out, showcase wins. We're gonna design a selected frameworks controls through the zero trust lens and that will allow us to manage and reduce risk versus focus on security. So in information security, right, uh, one of the things we tend to focus on the least is defining what we're trying to protect. We think we know what we're trying to protect, but we don't know where that, res where that resides. So over the years, we've been working diligently to reduce our attack surface. But our attack surface is like the universe. It's always expanding. As the business grows, that attack surface always gets bigger. And we never have a good pulse of where that attack surface is. So instead of focusing on that attack surface, uh, you know, we, we need to focus on the macro level of the attack surface, which in, in zero trust, you know, pivot from that macro level to the smallest possible reduction of the attack surface, which is called a protect surface. We'll get that here on the next slide. But look at this. We're, we're not talking about any products or solutions up there. You might choose to find a partner, uh, form a relationship with a vendor that allows you to go forth and identify where your assets and your data are, right? To be able to hunt down data internally or in a public cloud, to be able to assist you with enforcing classification and tagging. But this allows you to make more intelligent decisions and be able to refine what that protect surface looks like before you get to that zero trust foundation. All of the things here are designed to arm you with the tools and information necessary to make trust-based decisions, not secure system-based decisions. So when we talk about this protect surface, we, we're looking at things such as the data, applications, assets, and services. Uh, data, what data needs to be protected, which is why data is at the bottom of, of our, our triangle. Applications, which applications consume certain types of sensitive or classified information? Assets, which assets are the most sensitive? And services, which services like DNS, DHCP, Active Directory, can be exploited to disrupt normal IT operations or availability? So if you think about this, the awesome thing about this protect surface concept is that it's not only orders of magnitude smaller than an overall attack surface, this is always knowable. If you build the right processes and capabilities in an organization to mine and consume and build a knowledge base, this has a higher degree of being accurate than your attack surface. So now you made your attack surface smaller by focusing on the protect surface, uh, you can then go forth and moving controls as close as possible to that protect surface, uh, which we sometimes also interchange and call a micro perimeter, right? Uh, think back, does everybody in here in their organizations perform maybe an annual pen test or a periodic pen test? Uh, show of hands, how many times can a pen tester get inside? Right? Most organizations can't define or protect against your attack surface, which is why a pen tester is always able to get inside, right? Your protect surface is designed to minimize and or shrink the amount of uh, 
opportunistic and positive attempts that a pen tester or even a malicious adversary gets into your environment by focusing on that trust. And so by creating policy statements that are limited, precise, and understandable, we can limit the ability of our adversary to execute a successful or impactful attack. So I'm up here advocating for obviously the perfect theorized application of a protect service and zero trust, but guess what? Since it's just a strategy, we all get to design zero trust in a way that molds to our business. Not everybody's gonna require us to go forth, take every single protect surface and apply controls to the same degree throughout the environment, which is why it's so business friendly, right? This is why it's tied back to risk management. This is why it's tied back to risk appetite. Uh, the design concepts of actually going forth, defining a protect surface and going forth on zero trust is really whittled down to four areas. Our business outcomes are taking that protect surface uh, and then considering all that we need to know that's critical and identifying and aligning identity with that as well, right? So again, data, applications, assets, and services. Then we're going to design from the inside out. Why are we gonna de define from the inside out? Because by looking at the data itself, you know who's accessing, manipulating, changing, trying to uh, uh, you know, exfiltrate said data and then you can follow data from the end-to-end -end spectrum, right? Both ingress and egress, wherever the data is located, that allows you to make the most accurate and correct policy that's gonna to apply to said data. The understanding also could come from, right, scanning and mapping those transaction flows. You gotta understand how the DAAS, data applications, assets, and services, interact with each other and the resources in your environment or your remote network. Then we have to architect what people call that zero trust network, which is a fancy word of saying determine who needs access and what, which is why identities and roles and so forth come into play in the zero trust pyramid. Um, traditionally, we also refer to this as a reference architecture, right? It's so reference architecture for policies and layers. And this might be where you've defined how data needs to flow, you might look for a technology or a capability that can enforce that, but we shouldn't be going forth and looking for a technology to go forth and tell us how uh, workloads should be secure. We define how they're secured and go forth and find the solution that's gonna best align. And lastly, it's inspect, uh, excuse me, inspecting and logging and maintaining all traffic, getting into that maturity cycle. Just because you define the protect surface once doesn't mean the business won't evolve and change. All of our businesses are dynamic. So building in a request or a uh, dynamic uh, consumption model that we can make adjustments based on the business. But guess what? Since you defined the protect surface, you've made it very crystal clear what the business needs. How many times is a business unit owner coming to you telling you, yeah, we're gonna go migrate everything to, to Workday or to Salesforce? Well, okay, well, what are you moving there? Everything. What is everything? Well, we're gonna, we're gonna migrate everything to these SaaS systems. We're gonna buy all these modules. We're gonna consolidate and condense seven or eight different HRIS or CRM solutions into one. Well, well, that's great. Do you know where you're getting your data from? Well, yeah. Can you define it? No. That's where Protect Surface comes into play and allows you to get more granular, right? You can use things like the Kipling method to assist you architecting said policy by asking five simple questions. The who, what, how, where, and why. Uh, the where and why, um, the, the what and how um, folks are doing it, that can be modified with the where and even why, who is accessing a resource, what are they using to access it, such as applications, how this should they be allowed to access. Then you can establish more granular control. You might trust everything in a certain IP range, but not from different geographies, right? So it's very customizable. Using this Kipling method to create the actual policy, you can hone in on how you configure your, your security uh, capabilities that you already have within your environment. Uh, other zero trust benefits, as we talked about earlier with this CompreSec uh, notion that this, this term of combining compliance, privacy, and security requirements and, and uh, expectations on a single individual or a single team that has to do all of them, zero trust is actually the best strategy that provides clarity and a path forward to solve the implement once, use many, uh, that, that all of our regulatory requirements and privacy by design requirements uh, you know, are forcing organizations to do. It's also easily extendable for industry-specific regulations. And as we've all seen in, in recent news, right, everything from the federal government and NIST are taking a stab at defining what their version of zero trust looks like. And contractors for the federal government are actually being nudged along this path to better uh, enhance their maturity along a zero trust roadmap and path. 
some organizations that are not regulated also might find themselves facing privacy regulations like GDPR, CPRA. Well, guess what? All privacy regulations are telling you to do is be able to identify um, the right access for the right sources for the right people, again, at the right times, locations, devices, services. That's what Zero Trust enables you to do through that protect surface. So think about that. We talked about overhauling our strategy, implementing a Zero Trust strategy, and it makes the world a lot easier uh, because you have one North Star on how you adjust your uh, security program to. So how the heck do we get started with this, right? Because I told you it's not a product. It never will be a product. It's, it's how you think about applying risk management in an organization. Uh, what we found to be successful is building this thing called a center of excellence, right? It's much bigger than a team or a cross-functional group. It's dedicated individuals that manage from a common central point throughout the organization. If it's a big enough shift, uh, you might embark on obtaining buy-in from, from leadership. That's something that I've worked on with my team over the last few months that I've, that I've been at Huddle, right? We've obtained executive leadership to craft our security program strategies through the Zero Trust lens because we've been able to articulate the business agility and the benefits that'll be derived to support sales, to support internal processes, and so forth. But it's only through that dedicated and focused and diverse center of excellence that we're able to get the buy-in, the questions, and uh, create the common knowledge base to move forward. Uh, you can also get engaged with a partner, right? There's firms out there or even local industry resources uh, uh, talking with other uh, security leaders or practitioners that have done this before. Ask what worked, ask what didn't work, refine your strategy. And you always wanna start low risk versus the crown jewels. So even though we're identifying everything uh, by looking at all of our data applications, assets, and services. The last thing you want to do is get a black eye when you're starting to clamp down on your zero trust policy. So you always want to start with the low risk first. So in closing thoughts, to make sure we have some time for some questions either here or after the session, the important thing is to remember that slow and steady actually wins this race. You're not going to leave this room, go forth and advocate for zero trust and get it implemented over the next few weeks and months, the first thing that might happen is somebody might just ignore you and tell you, well, that's nice, go forth and, and solve if you think you can do it, right? Or you, you might just get blown off. It's, it's, about, it's not about finding products or capabilities, either in an attempt to showcase immediate impacts that, that wane over time, or that can even deliver most of what you buy. Uh, but you gotta keep your eye on the long prize, right? The, the long goal line. Adjusting your grand strategy and security strategy takes time to align. It impacts all facets through an organization. Um, and more than anything, uh, believe it or not, it requires excessive listening. Knowing the business better than they know themselves, right? As security professionals, we find ourselves in that position all the time. How many times have you found yourself articulating back to a business or application owner more about the application than they know themselves and they use it every day, right? That's part of what we do day in and day out. We have to also relentlessly pursue the activities that will cause us to win. Um, we might have a program built that can withstand incident after incident. We might be able to showcase to our board and our leadership or even management, yeah, we had zero successful impacts or breaches last year, but do we have good metrics on how much time and overhead it took to do that? We have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, switching the focus to trust for security sometimes can seem at odds of what we're trying to do. And think about how difficult it is for a non-security person to hear that. I hired a security team and you guys aren't focused on security, you're focusing on this trust thing? That makes no sense. So we have to assume positive intent, lead with empathy, because even if you put together a phenomenal zero trust strategy, people don't know what they don't know, right? So we have to educate, partner, and show why changing tactics is going to better resonate and align with the business. Um, we're, not op you know, we're not advocating for process elimination. Uh, we're refining and changing processes, right? That's what makes zero trust elusive and perceived as difficult because it forces us to reckon with the uh, either both technical debt and or the administrative debt that's within our organization. So once you've defined that why, you have to stick with your why. Uh, remember, zero trust is 80 to 90% behavior, only 10 to 20% head knowledge, just like most things that are worth focusing time on. It's very easy to lose focus you have to remain intentional. You have to seek out advice, and most importantly, surround yourself with like-minded individuals and folks that have either done this before, have explored this before, or are willing to engage with you on an open-ended discussion. So, thank you.
Okay, well, thank you, Robert. That was amazing to hear that presentation again for Robert. Again, if you would like to find out more about Robert, you can connect with him or follow him on LinkedIn. His name is Robert LaMagna slash writer. Again, um, as you all know, he's the VP Chief Information Security Officer um, at Huddle. So thank you again, Robert. He is just an amazing guy doing amazing things in our industry. We're super excited. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we are going to be in Denver at the, um, in the Denver Tech Center on Wednesday, May 11th. And our keynote speaker, he's actually been on the show before, is Chris Roberts. He is a VCSO researcher. He is a hacker, um, consultant, devil's advocate, and he has a podcast also called The Hillbilly Hit Squad. He's going to be our keynote speaker, and we have an amazing panel that day. We have... um, Chris will be on the panel. We have uh, Al Gardner. He's from Salud Family Health Centers. We have Trent Brummel. He's the Information System Security Officer from SAIC. We have Jatendra Batrar from Blue River International. Parker Brissett. He is the CISO from the Colorado Judicial Branch, and he's the Head of Information Security and CISO. So that's going to be an amazing event. If you guys happen to be in the Colorado area and you would like to join that event, just please um, message me. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, You can message me anytime you want on LinkedIn and I will am happy to extend a ticket for you all. So again, another great episode of and security for all. Again, you guys can check out any past episodes. Just um, follow us on at your favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can go find any of our on demand past episodes. So that is it. Um, Thanks, everyone. Everyone stay safe, stay secure. Have a wonderful weekend and we will see you next Friday. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events.